Hello, hello. All right, let's get our Bibles out tonight. We're in Hebrews, the book in the Bible that proves men should make the coffee. Amen. Who likes their coffee really strong? All right, the rest of you can get out. Some people are serious about coffee. So here we are in Hebrews chapter 5. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it to you, and we're going to jump in and just pull it apart and have fun with it. Let's just thank God for the word. Father, we thank you for the word tonight. We thank you for these studies where we can just slow down, take time, pull each verse apart and enjoy all the treasures you've tucked into your word, Lord. Father, I pray tonight that uh, the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened, that we would know what is the hope of our calling and what's the truth of your word as it is unfolded for us tonight by the Holy Spirit. Don't let any of us leave the way we came, but allow us to be changed by your word. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, that's not just a prayer that I'm reading somewhere. I, I really want God to change me every time I open up the Bible. Amen. And I know you do too. Because uh, the only thing that will really change us from the inside out is God's word. Exterior superficial change might come by man's willpower, but it doesn't last. Amen? The only lasting change is produced as the word conforms us to the image of Christ. So here is Hebrews chapter 5. Listen, there's a lot tucked in here. There's some theological things we're going to cover tonight. And um, just some good meat. It says, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. Now remember, we're talking about not Jesus the high priest, but a regular high priest. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And he being made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications. Uh, I, I read that twice, but it's good to hear it twice. Supplications because of his piety. Although he cried with a loud voice and tears to one being able to save him from death, he was heard uh, as a son. He learned obedience through the things he suffers. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles and oracles of God, and you have come to need milk 
and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So there's a lot in there tonight. There's a lot of terminology and some theological things, and we're going to jump right in. Hebrews 5 continues to show us the theme of the book of Hebrews what? It's the superiority of Jesus Christ. Here they're showing that Jesus is superior to all high priests. He is the high priest of high priests. It points to the fact that Jesus is uniquely qualified to be a high priest, and he's perfect in every way. Verse 1 shows us that every high priest other than Jesus the perfect high priest, was just a man selected from among men. Understand, God had to select priests from among the people. In fact, he selected a whole tribe to be set apart as priests for him, and that was the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi provided priests. Aaron was that first priest that stood alongside Moses, and God selected him. Uh, Just selecting men from among men, realize they are fallible, flawed, sinful men. Many times people take spiritual leaders and priests and and, and put them on a pedestal. And it's good to respect the office, amen. We need to respect the office. But never uh, forget for a moment that all of us are sinners and we need to be saved by grace. Sometimes we make idols out of Christian leaders. When I was a kid in the 80s, I mean, there was like Christian superstars on TV. The flashy suits and the thousand dollar shoes come on I mean, and people made idols out of them they were household names some of you who've been saved just recently have no idea what i'm talking about and god bless you but high priests and priests and all of these priests that were selected by god like pastors were just selected by the father and empowered by the holy spirit to serve on behalf of the people they served god on behalf of the people but they they were just merely men now pastors like high priests, are under shepherds. Jesus is the great shepherd. He's the head of the body of Christ, amen? No matter how godly or wonderful or, or sincere or holy a, a human being is, a person is, a pastor is, they will never come even close to being like Jesus. All right? I, w- I want you to get that. Because sometimes we put people on idols. Sometimes we, we put people up on an idol, and if they make a mistake, we, we, all of a sudden we don't want to listen to them anymore. Look, I'm a sinner saved by grace. You say, well, how did you get this job? I don't know. God called me. Sometimes God made me. So don't ever lift up a human and put him in the place that only Jesus can hold. The body of Christ is led by Christ. He is the head. Even the most reverent, committed, sanctified Christian leaders you'll ever meet, they don't even come close to Jesus, amen? They are just under shepherds. Priests stood before God and they advocated on behalf of the people. Why? Because they had to broker a covering for the sin of the people so the the people in the Old Testament could approach God. Remember, there was no cross. There was no blood of Jesus spilled yet. So what did they have to do? They had to cover sin. This is dicey. Because why? Because it didn't take away the sin. It only covered it. Just like Adam and Eve sinned. And what did they do? They covered themselves with leaves. And then God said, no, 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 no. Leaves won't even do. I'm going to kill some animals and take their skins. Why? Because by the shedding of blood, there is forgiveness of sin. 
See, blood had to be shed and those animal skins had to be used as a covering for sin. So the priests brokered before the Lord and they, they dealt with the people's sins. It says, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, God made a system. He had requirements and, and offerings had to be made. Gifts had to be presented and they had to be done in, in such a, a, a methodical way as not to offend a holy God. Why? Because we're dealing with just a temporary covering for sin understand the old testament priesthood was uh, just a band-aid on the shotgun wound until jesus came and destroyed the power of sin all we could do is cover it for a little while you know they had to keep re-offering sacrifices killing bulls and and lambs and offering doves and all these things why because that temporary covering would only cover for a little while and then it wasn't good enough anymore so we see that the priest offered covering for sin they brokered uh between the people and god they stood between god and the people and jesus christ has done the same exact thing for all of us but he did it once and for all jesus doesn't have to be crucified over and over again hello there are some religious systems that say oh you know you gotta you you gotta partake over and over again and it's uh, you know jesus has to be crucified and you you know the, and and when we have communion it's actually the real body and blood of christ absolutely wrong Jesus died once for all. It's an eternal sacrifice. When he said it is finished, he wasn't kidding. Okay? So he did it once and for all. Jesus offered the required sacrifice for sin. What was that? Death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The wages of sin are what? Jesus offered his life. That was the sacrifice that was required of God, and he willingly did it. On the cross, he paid our debt in full, and he offers us the free gift of eternal life. There is no high priest like Jesus. Verse 2, look how much fun we had in one verse. Verse 2 continues here, and he, he talks to us about dealing gently with the ignorant and the misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. So the high priest in the Old Testament, uh, they were very human, and they had to have patience with the ignorant and the misguided, as the Bible calls them. Why? Because... Honestly, they were sinners themselves, so they understood, you know, I mess up, you mess up, we all approach God. You know, I can have patience uh, with someone who's a sinner because I'm a sinner, amen? You know, people who think they're perfect don't have patience with people who are imperfect. Anybody ever meet anybody like that? They thought they were perfect in every way, come on, and you were always messing up, and, you know, they, they try to put you down and make themselves feel better. No, only Jesus is perfect. So... You say, well, how does Jesus identify with us? He took the flesh on. And when he took the flesh on, he felt the weakness of sin. You say, well, how do you know that? Because he was tempted in all ways as we are. That's what the word says. To, to be tempted meant that he knew the weakness of the sin. Oh, so now Jesus knew the weakness of sin, but he never gave himself over to it, and he crucified his flesh on the cross, a, a, a worthy sacrifice to break the power of sin. And understand something, he can relate to us because of that. I'm going to say something here that might shake you a little bit. God in heaven cannot relate to the weakness of man. God the Father doesn't know what it's like to be weak, imperfect. He, does, he, doesn't, know, he doesn't know what it's like to be tempted. In fact, the Bible says, don't ever say that you're tempted of God. Why? God doesn't tempt and he's not tempted. He tests his children, but he doesn't tempt us. That's the devil's gig. So 
we have this high priest who knows our weakness, and it's because he felt the weakness of the flesh when he walked in it, yet he overcame it on our behalf. Verse 3, human high priests had to sacrifice sacrifices for their own sin. There again, going back to the Old Testament priesthood. And because of it, he is obligated to offer, who's he, the Old Testament high priest? He's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for people, so also for himself. Understand, again, the Old Testament sacrificial system. The high priest had to be ritually cleaned. He had to wear the right garments. He had to have the right heart. He had to be ceremonially cleansed. I mean, it was a big to-do. And then he had to offer sacrifices for his own sins. Wow, why is that? Because if, uh, it doesn't matter if you're the high priest or not and you've got all the right clothes on. If you walk into the presence of God in sin in the Old Testament, you just might not come out alive. So understand, the, we're contrasting every human high priest against Jesus the high priest to show Jesus' superiority. And the superiority that's being shown here is that Jesus never had to offer sacrifices for his own sin because he was sinless. It's a big deal, everybody. I know you don't look impressed, but that's all I had from that verse, you know. Jesus was sinless. He didn't have to offer sacrifices for his sins. Every other high priest did, so Jesus is superior to every other high priest. Remember, he's trying to convince the Jewish mindset, you can accept Jesus. He's everything you've ever wanted, everything you ever needed. He's the Messiah. He fulfills all the messianic Old Testament prophecies. You can come to him and believe. Jesus never had to offer anything for his own sin. He had no sin to reconcile. He was totally sinless. He's far superior. Verse four highlights two important perspectives that every believer should have. And verse four is powerful here. It says, and no one takes the honor to himself. What honor? The honor of being high priest, okay? Listen, no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. And let's talk about that a little bit there. Here are two important perspectives every believer should have. Number one, serving God in any capacity is an honor. Serving God in any capacity is an honor. It's not a burden it's not, you know, a loss. It's an honor. Whether you serve in the children's ministry, you serve in the youth ministry, you serve on the worship team, you serve in the ushers, wherever you serve, whatever you do, maybe you do outreach, whatever ministry God has called you to, whatever giftings he's given you, when you use them, it is not a burden, it is not drudgery, it's an honor. And we have to see it that way. All of us have gifts. All of us have callings. It's not just like, you know, you're the congregation, I'm the pastor, I got a gift and a calling. I use my gift, you have a good time, hopefully you come back. No, you got gifts and callings too, come on. And all of us have to use those gifts and callings. There's no spectators in the kingdom of God. No bleacher creatures. No, I'm, you know, I'm just here to watch, I'm here to observe, and you know, maybe if I don't like something, I'll criticize. That can be my ministry. That's not a ministry. Okay, all of us have gifts and calling and anytime we use those to serve God in any capacity, it's an honor. No one takes the honor, the verse says. And I want you to understand something. When it comes to using your gifts, sometimes it's gonna be hard. Ministry is demanding. Let me just, you know, let me just tell you the truth here. Ministry is demanding and it's draining and people can be difficult. Did you ever notice that? See, <laughs> you say, well, you got the greatest job. You read the Bible all day and it's just great. And <laughs> people are difficult. 
I, I mean, I, the grace that you need to deal with people, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? When you want to just lay hands on them, but not like the Bible says. But you got to extend mercy. <laughs> you don't realize how much self-control sometimes it takes just for me to contain myself up here. It's, it's sketchy at times. So ministry is an honor, and it, it is demanding, and it is draining, but we should never allow ourselves to see it as a burden. Oh, I don't want to go work with the children. Oh, I don't want to sit in the nursery. Oh, oh, another worship team practice. Oh, the youth. Can I just get a night off? Look, uh, Jesus made all of those who minister take time away and get refreshed, and that's a good thing, too. You know, sometimes just a few people do so much that they get worn out. And that's a shame, too, because that means the body of Christ is not popping on all eight cylinders. Some people are doing nothing, and some people are doing two and three jobs. <laughs> Welcome to the ministry, I used to say. But listen to me. In 26 years of full-time ministry, I've trained myself to think like this. It's not that I have to preach. Oh, I got to preach twice this week. It's I get to preach. It's not that, oh, I got to lead worship tonight. It's like, wow, I get to lead worship tonight. Are, are you getting this? Oh, I got to sit down and counsel someone in distress. What an honor it is. Come on, it's a matter of perspective. And there's too many Christians who don't want to do anything because they got a bad attitude and the wrong perspective, and they see ministry as a burden, and it's not a burden, it's an honor. I'm honored to be up here tonight. What an honor that God would use somebody like me. What a miracle. You have no idea. Number two, the second perspective is this. Every believer should see serving God, number one, as an honor, and every believer should see serving God in any capacity as not a choice, but a calling. And this is what the, the verse brings out here. You know, he, it's bringing out the fact that this is not, you know, a vocation that you choose. I'm gonna talk about that in a minute. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called, say called, receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. You know, Aaron was that first high priest there who ministered alongside of Moses. Why did Aaron get the job? Because he was Moses' brother, right? It was nepotism. It's nepotism, right? Moses said, hey, I got to pick a priest. I'll pick a... No, he was called of God. Amen. Even, even you, you know, you, you can't just appoint people to ministry or to offices or to titles just because you're related or just because you like them. They got to be called. You know, there's a lot of knuckleheads in the body of Christ who try and do a lot of things that are not biblical. You say, how do you know that? I've been around the block in 26 years. It's quiet now. And the truth is, you, you have to be called or you don't get the office. That's just the bottom line. When I was in Bible school, I had a teacher who had said to the whole class, ministry is a calling. If you are not called, then you should do anything else other than the ministry. If you are called, you won't be able to do anything else but the ministry. People who are in ministry and not called bring devastation to the body of Christ they eventually burn out because you can't sustain yourself unless you're called. Understand this. I've seen men try to seize ministry for themselves, try to seize ministry for their children, try to put titles on people that weren't called, and it's always turned out ugly. <laughs> Too much meat for you tonight? Did you pass out? I don't hear a word. The truth is, you and I are called to do something, and we've got to do it. If we're not called... 
then we should not lay hands on anything and try and take it for ourselves. This is not a vocation. I once heard somebody on the internet giving some webinar about if, if uh, it was some school trying to sell uh, Bible degrees, you know, you get your degree, you take the class, and, and the whole thing just left a bad taste in my mind. And I said, if you're choosing the ministry as a vocation, and I just about threw up on my keyboard. All they were trying to do is get people to complete a course and pay money and get a certificate, and they didn't care whether they were called or not. They're talking about choosing the ministry as a vocation. Totally the wrong attitude. You and I are called to do some certain things. We need to find out what they are and do them because it's a matter of calling, not a matter of choice. Aaron didn't choose the priesthood for himself. He didn't get the job because he was Moses' brother. (laughs) God called him. So two important attitudes there. Ministry in any capacity is an honor, and ministry in any capacity is not a choice, but it's a matter of calling. Verse 5 and 6 show three interesting facts about Jesus' priesthood. Now remember, we're talking about the priesthood of Jesus Christ, and it says, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he said to him, You are my son, Today I've begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the first thing uh, we see about Jesus' priesthood here is he didn't even appoint himself. And he didn't get the job just because he was the only begotten son. The father appointed him and called him to do it. Amen? Realize Jesus has always been. He wasn't created. We're going to talk about being begotten, not made in just a little bit. But he's sitting up there with the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Trinity. And the Father says, you know, you're going to do this. You're going to go to earth. You're going to be born of a virgin. He lays it all out. And Jesus submits to the Father. So even Jesus' calling as a high priest was not that he appointed himself. You've got to watch out for the self-appointed and the self-anointed. They've got to be God-appointed and God-anointed. Amen? Jesus' priesthood was like Aaron in that Aaron didn't pick it himself. He was chosen by God. That's where the similarities end between Jesus and Aaron. But the, the writer of Hebrews is making the point here that not even Jesus appointed himself. Number two, the second interesting thing about Jesus' priesthood is this. Jesus is the only begotten son of the Father. What does that mean? Begotten is translated from the Greek word gegenica. And it means to bring forth to engender or cause to rise. You see, Jesus wasn't created. God just appointed him with the title of son, and he took that position. Does that make sense to you? The the Trinity's a mystery. It can be hard to understand. It can even be harder to articulate. But understand, God didn't just say, well, I'm going to make my son today. And Jesus, no, Jesus is preexistent. He always was. He's the eternal creator. He was there from the beginning. He's fully God. He's not created, he's begotten. Begotten means that God just entitled him, brought him forth, engendered him. He caused him to rise, and now he took the place in the Trinity as the Son. So Jesus was begotten, not made. Every other high priest was made. Remember, the, 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 the writer here is trying to show the supremacy of Christ. So every other high priest was made. How is he made? Born of a woman, born in the flesh, born in sin. Not Jesus. Jesus was begotten. He's the only high priest that was begotten and not made. Why? Because he's the only begotten son of the Father. He was appointed by the Father. He was begotten by the Father. And he is preexistent, eternal creator of all things. And he's far superior to every other high priest. So he didn't call himself, number one. 
He was begotten, not made, in number three. Jesus' priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek. Now, there's a name that, you know, uh, a lot of people have had a lot of questions about who Melchizedek is. Have you ever heard that before? One and a half people. Praise God. Three. Okay. Now, Melchizedek, we're going to talk about tonight. There's a lot of cults and uh, shifty groups that try and use the priesthood of Melchizedek to create another order of authority. And it's a big theological mess. And a lot of it is just wives' tales and fictions and people trying to hijack the word. But let's talk about Melchizedek. Melchizedek, is verse, he's mentioned in verse 6 here that we're covering. He's also mentioned in verse 10, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek was a priest who appeared to Abraham. Abraham had a lot of interaction with him. He is called the king of Salem and a priest of the most high God. Amen. He sounds important, doesn't he? The king, he's a king and a priest. Jesus is both king and priest. And so, uh, you know, we're going to look at Melchizedek here. He's mentioned 10 times in Scripture, two times in the Old Testament in Genesis 14 and in Psalm 110. And the rest of the times he's mentioned in the book of Hebrews, where we're talking about here. He's very significant as a priest. And since this book is talking about our high priest in Jesus Christ, we see eight of the 10 mentions in Scripture occur in Hebrews. Now, he was what theologians call a type of Christ. Most theologians, every theologian will agree that Melchizedek was a type of Christ. Abraham brought tithes and offerings to Melchizedek and offered him a tenth of everything he got. Now, th- that becomes important to people who say, well, tithing is Old Testament, it's the law, so we don't have to tithe. Well, listen, Abraham offered a tenth to Melchizedek before the law was even given. Tithing precedes the law it's quiet now so that argument well you know that's old testament it's the law it's legalistic it happened before the law was even given abraham brought a tenth of all that he got to melchizedek the the king of salem the high priest of the most high god they'll say he is a christophany a, a type of christ means that someone who exemplifies Christ uh, and, and the virtues of Christ and is a type and shadow of Christ. But some scholars will say he's a Christophany, which is an, an Old Testament appearance of Christ. Anybody circuits just blow? Jesus showed up in the Old Testament. Uh, a lot of scholars believe that Melchizedek is a, an Old Testament uh, Christophany, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, and that Abraham had uh, dealings with him and offered a, a, a tithe to him. So at least he is a type of Christ. At most, he is Christ himself. That debate is uh, something that, you know, there's couple different camps on it but what i want you to see here the important thing that we need to realize as we study hebrews is this that that jesus's priesthood is not from the aaronic line you getting this aaron aaron the aaronic line not moronic aaronic okay that's important um aaron's line all the priests that came through the old testament came Aaron was the starting point, amen, and they came through the Aaronic line. Jesus is not from the human line of priesthood. He's from the order of Melchizedek. It's a different line. It's a divine line. It's a special line. There's no one like Jesus. He's the ultimate high priest. He's not descended from the priesthood and the Aaronic line down through the, no, he is a different thing. He is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, and he's far superior to every other high priest. 
Verse 7 shows Jesus' humanity here. Remember, he's fully God, but he was also fully man. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. So talking about Jesus' flesh there, talking about him presenting offerings, how? Of prayers and supplications. Crying with loud voice, with tears. We see Jesus' humanity. He had emotion. He showed emotion. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, what? He, he, he wept and he cried out and he, he trembled with, with such intensity that uh, Christian history says that he sweat blood. Jesus wept over the multitudes. Why? Because they were like sheep without shepherd. Jesus showed great emotion. When Lazarus died, he cried and he wept with them. He's fully God and fully man. He shows his humanity in how he shows emotion. Realize our high priest is not, you know, some stoic robot who has no feelings, who has no emotions. Have you ever been around someone who doesn't know how to emote? I mean, it's like they're like robotic, you know, they don't make any response, they don't show any emotion. Man, I don't know, I would rather have you screaming at me than just standing there like a statue. All the wives are glaring at their husbands. You never share your feelings with me. Well, I'm having fun. Jesus' humanity is shown here. He's humble. He makes prayers and supplications. He, He prays with intensity. He cries tears to his heavenly father. He endured hardship. He knew rejection like none of us ever knew rejection. The Bible says he came to his own and his own received him not. He had 12 disciples and one of them betrayed him with a kiss. Jesus knew the emotions, the pain, the tears He was a man of sorrows, the Bible says. He can relate to you in your pain. He can relate to you in your tears. He can relate to you in your betrayal. He can relate to you when everybody abandons you and lets you down and accuses you of things that you never did. Come on. That's the high priest we have. You can go to him. You can go to him and be real with him. He can relate. Verse 8 says he learned obedience like all sons of God. What? Through the things he suffered. And that's maybe a verse we don't like. Oh, God, can you teach me any other way but suffering? I hate to say it. I got to admit it because I'm under the anointing here. But there's some lessons we only learn through suffering. You know, we can, we, and I, you know, try and teach, you know, the people we love, our children and everything, to not learn things the hard way. But if we won't learn from the examples of others, what, what's the whole point of the Old Testament? That we learn from the example of others, Amen. And we got some Christians who go, I don't want to read the Old Testament. That's now we're in the New Testament. Well, it's no wonder why you fall out of the frying pan into the fire all the time and you make the same mistakes that the, that the children of Israel and the, and the, and the prophets. You, you got to learn the hard way. So we learn obedience by the things we suffer. Now, I'm all for learning the easy way. That requires humility and wisdom. Any takers? But if we're not humble, if, we're, if we won't embrace wisdom, we'll learn the hard way and we'll learn obedience. Jesus suffered things and he learned lessons. And the Bible says that Jesus grew in favor with God and man. Wow. That should blow your circuits tonight. Jesus had to grow in favor with God and man. Yeah, because he had the flesh on and as he overcame it, he grew in wisdom and favor with God and man. If Jesus had to do that, how much more are we going to have to do that? Wow. 
Verse 9, Jesus' perfection allowed him to be the ultimate sacrifice for sin. You know, verse 9 shows us over and over again, we hear this, that, you know, Jesus was perfect, he was sinless, he walked in the flesh. We get that, we understand the theology of it. It said, having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of, of eternal salvation. Jesus' perfection is what we need to focus on. We cannot attain that, but we can receive mercy because of his blood being shed on our behalf. He's the ultimate sacrifice for sin. Do you know what? If you crucify a sinner, it doesn't break the power of sin. If you nailed me to the cross, it'd be like, well, he deserved it. And so would you. If I said, well, I want to die for the church, I love the church so much, nail me to the cross wouldn't accomplish anything it would be justice i'm a sinner the, the wages of sin are death nail me up there i deserve it but when you take the only begotten son of god who walked perfect as a man and overcame the sinful flesh and you nail him up there he becomes the source of eternal salvation for all who would obey amen you should notice that part about obey not all who mumble a prayer, not all who, you know, cry tears at the altar, all who what? Receive him and obey. It's important. It's important in Western Christianity. Verse 10 is uh, about Melchizedek again, and we covered that, and we understand that. Verse 11 points out the very real responsibility that, the very real possibility that religious people can be, you know, spiritually lost and this is important it says concerning him we have much to say and it's hard to explain to you because you have become dull of hearing wow these were these were christians he's talking to these were maybe jewish converts that have been raised in judaism but had you know opened their hearts up to christ and now they were reverting back to their their old system they didn't want to give up their traditions so he says you know what this is hard to explain why since you have become dull of hearing realize he's talking to people who understood the old testament people who considered them religious and people who considered themselves righteous it's important for us to get this. Why? Because if we're religious, we have the very real possibility of becoming spiritually jaded. We have the very poss real possibility of becoming lukewarm and then become dull of hearing. Do you know there's some people who sit in church just because they feel obligated to, but they've closed their hearts off to the Holy Spirit a long time ago, and even though the preaching is with the anointing and the power of God, it just bounces right off. And then what happens? We get jaded. And the longer we sit there with a closed heart, the duller we get. To the point where we could become like the Pharisees who were so self-righteous and religious and lost that Jesus opposed them to their face. He called them serpents and vipers, whitewashed walls, tombs of dead men's bones. Never let your heart become dull. Never get lukewarm. Stay hot. Stay on fire. If you're getting dull, stop. Withdraw yourself. Get in his presence. Get in the word. Get on your knees. But don't become lukewarm. It's a dangerous place to be. Verse 12 through 14 it's another cold bucket of water in the face of God's people. You know, I like the way God's word tries to wake us up. It says, for the, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need 
for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, for you have come to need milk and not solid food. Wow. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature. You, because of practice, solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Let me try and close down with those verses tonight. There's a lot of powerful things said in there, and it's like a bucket of cold water. Remember, he's talking to, he's talking to spiritual people who knew the Old Testament, and he says what? You, you know, you should be teachers by now, but you're babies still, and you need someone to teach you. you. You should be able to eat meat by now. You know, you've been sitting in church for 10 years, for 15 years. You've been sitting under the anointing for a couple decades, but you still want milk. Ouch. Wow. God loves us enough sometimes to shake us up. You know, you're not supposed to shake babies, but you can shake saints. You should be teachers by now, but you need to be taught the basics again. This applies so perfectly to the, to the Laodicean-type church or the multitudes, those church-hopping, immature pew potatoes who want to hear what they want to hear and only what they want to hear. And if I don't hear what I want to hear, I'm out of here. Oh, that was the anointing right there. Right? The Laodicean church, lukewarm, disgusting. God said, read the book of Revelation. It's a lot of fun. But, you know, we have to be willing to tolerate meat. And, you know, I know this is the Wednesday night meat eaters club. You guys are all great. It's the seats that are empty. Those guys are out for milk. They're probably over across the street getting ice cream. That's like milk. It's frozen milk. But... You know, the, the, there are churches that will not tolerate the preaching of the word, and they don't want to hear about certain topics. You know, it's a consumer. It's, consumer Christianity is a problem in our generation. And, you know, there are people who just want to bounce from church to church and see, what, what does the church have to offer me? I remember one time <laughs> I was in the visitor's room back when we can talk to each other and touch one another. And someone came to me, and my, I think my wife was there. You probably remember this. And they said, well, what does the church have to offer us? So we had two ushers come out and beat them with an offering plate. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it, I remember just kind of being taken aback by that because it just reeked of consumer Christianity. Well, you, what do you have to offer us? And I was listening to a pastor on the bridge share a story about, you know, someone came up to him at the end of his preaching and basically said that same thing that was said to me. And he said, uh, you know, they said, well, what does your church have to offer us, Pastor, Mr. Pastor Man? And he said, I was tired. And I was a little grouchy. You know where this is going? And so he said, what do you guys have to offer us? Turned it around on him. You see, because... It's a, it's a give and take relationship here. God has called us together to be part of a body, not so, you know, we can be consumers and take and it's a performance and, you know, make me laugh and don't talk about this topic or don't talk about that subject or don't talk about politics because, you know, that might actually change our nation and we might slow down the abortions and, you know, just be quiet. Understand. I, I'll talk about whatever I want from here. I've had people 
come to the church and say, well, he said something that seemed political, so we're not coming back. Don't let the door hit you where the good Lord split you, okay? Uh, Look, there's too much at stake in our nation for preachers to be mute at the pulpit. There's too many spineless people that won't... Why do you think our schools are a mess? Why do you think that they're aborting children in some urban areas? More children are aborted than are born alive, and the church is supposed to shut up? It's time for us to get loud. It's time for us to take a stand, amen? It's not, well, what do you have to offer us, church? We should be, the world should realize we got the truth to offer them. I'm not being arrogant tonight, but we need to turn the tables around a little bit every once in a while. So milk is for babies and meat is for the mature. It says, for everyone who partakes only of milk. Now, a little milk is okay once in a while, amen? Anybody? You can't have meat, 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 meat all the time. I mean, we serve some meat up here, right? But you got, you got to have some milk too. You talk about God's love and balance it with God's justice, and you talk about God's grace, and you balance it with God's uh, wrath, and you, there's a balance. That's why we're the full gospel center. We're giving you the full balance here, amen? But, you know, if you only want milk only, that's a problem. Now, you can't have meat only, but you've got to have a balance. It says, if you're accustomed to milk only, then you are not accustomed to the word of righteousness for you're an infant. Wow. Spiritual babies never come to maturity. They never get used to solid food. Could you imagine being 40 years old and still eating, you know, uh, cream of sweet potato, Gerber baby food? Well, I, I got the mashed bananas. I like those. Anybody taste baby food recently? pretty good isn't it but you know that, that hey hey come over to the house you want to want to have steak want to have some, no, no I, I have crushed bananas when you come to god's house you got to be willing to eat a balanced meal amen and that's what the, the author's saying here milk is for babies meat is for the mature verse 14 gives three marks of the spiritually mature and i know when pastor says three marks that means it could be another hour i'm going to go through this quick it says here in verse 14 It says, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. There's a lot in there right there. The first mark of the spiritually mature is this, what? They've put in the repetitive work to become mature. It says, who because of practice. How do you become good and proficient and excellent at anything? You've got to practice. It doesn't sound like you're excited about that. That sounds like work. I don't... Yeah, it's work to become spiritually mature. We've got to put the things of God in practice into our life. It takes humility. Listen, if you want to be excellent at something, if you want to reach maturity, if you want to you know, get to the place where you, you're looking more like Jesus and less like you used to look, then you've got to put in the practice, the repetitive work to become mature as a Christian. None of this comes easy. Number two, the second mark of the spiritually mature is this. They've allowed the Holy Spirit to train them. It says having their senses trained. Think about that. What does that mean? That means that the Holy Spirit is going to use our senses and our spiritual perception and develop discernment in us to train us. Anything that you train to do, you start off knowing nothing and you increase in knowledge and you through the repetitive work you you train and you discipline and you work through the bruises and the bumps and the aches and the pains and you put the spiritual bengay on oh i'm all beat up 
Anybody? Come on. It takes training. Those who are spiritually mature have allowed themselves to be trained by the Holy Spirit. They've embraced discipline and have their spiritual sense and their discernment trained. Sadly, we have so many people in the body of Christ that are untrained. And their senses are still sensual. They can't discern. They have no discernment. We have so far to go. Help us, Lord. Number three, the third mark of the spiritually mature from verse 14 is they've developed a solid level of spiritual discernment. It says, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. There it is, that discernment again. When it comes to maturity, we can tell just as if we can tell the difference between the colors of black and white. It's a stark difference. When we're spiritually mature, we can tell the difference between good and evil. And sadly, there again in the body of Christ, we have such a low level of discernment. And even when shepherds will speak to their flocks, discerning things, they don't want to hear it. No, I like my opinion better than God's truth. We got practice and training and discernment to develop to be mature Christians. Hebrews is showing us here that we can't just sit in church and... and and ask for milk, but we've got to be willing to eat meat. Why? So that we can be mature. Why? So we can be useful in the kingdom of God. Why? So we can bring in the harvest that God wants to bring in. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are full because they're not spiritually mature and they still want milk. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, I just thank you tonight for the word. I thank you for this study. I thank you for these meat eaters that are here on Wednesday that come and receive what the Holy Spirit has from them with, with gladness, with humility. God, help us to, to stay humble, to never think more of ourselves than we ought, to allow you to train us, to develop discernment in us, to forsake our own opinions and our own intellect and allow the truth of God to be the anchor of our soul. Father, I pray all this in Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Amen. Give him praise tonight. Amen.